Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible with you today, would you turn with me now to the book of Acts, chapter 2. The particular text we're going to read today is found on page 9 in your bulletin. Familiar text. We just read it a few months ago at Pentecost season. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray for the Spirit's working with your word now, Father, in a mighty way. In Jesus' good name, amen. What I want to do over the next few weeks in this short series that I want to preach through is I just want to open a big door with you. And I want to step through it, and I want to walk a few steps down the path on the other side of that door with you. But I will tell you now, there's going to be a lot of territory that we're going to just sort of look at from a distance. And I really hope in time you will take a walk in that territory and explore it further. But we're only going to go so far. So let's get started. It's the first turn of the key. I want to ask you guys a question. If I ask you to imagine a prophet, not P-R-O-F-I-T, what money lovers love, but P-R-O-P-H-E-T. If I ask you to imagine a prophet, what image comes to your mind? What does a prophet look like? Now, I suspect, like a lot of you, I have this, this sort of picture in my head of a prophet, and I picture this guy with wild hair and a wild beard, and, you know, he's probably wearing a robe and sandals, and he's got this very intense glint in his eye, and he's probably carrying a picket sign of some kind, and he's got a message from God, and he's wagging a sort of gnarled finger at people. Probably he's got some vision of the future that he needs to tell. That's kind of what I picture as a prophet. And so I want to give you all a very loaded proposal now. I know that what I'm about to say could be very easily misunderstood. I know it could be abused, but I want to give you a very strong proposal I'd like you guys to take just a second right now and look around this room. Go ahead, look around. 
Look at the people. Here's my proposal. This is what prophets look like. You're sitting in a room full of them. Now, my goal by the end of this short series is that that will not just be one of those crazy things that preacher Ben says sometimes for effect, but I hope that by the end of this series that will actually be a conviction for you about who you are, about who we are, and that that conviction will be something that is mobilizing all of us to serve Jesus in some very fresh ways. Because you will notice what we just read. Peter is preaching from, an, from a prophet named Joel who lived about centuries, some centuries before Jesus. Peter is preaching from a prophet, Joel, in what we call the Old Testament. And Joel prophesied that in the last days, now hopefully you guys have been with us long enough that you know that is not referring to some end of the world scenario. The last days for the prophets were the days when Messiah came. And Peter is saying, reminding his hearers that Joel, prophet Joel told us that in the last days when Messiah comes, God would by his spirit turn all of his people into prophets. Your sons, your daughters, my male servants, my female servants, they will all be prophets. I want to begin today very quickly with the story of the prophets. The story of the prophets. To give you some idea of kind of how to think about this maybe. So let me ask you all, who is the first person in the Bible that God identified as a prophet? It might surprise you. Moses is a good guess. It's not actually correct, but it's a good guess. Who's the first person God identified as a prophet? Say that. Abraham. Very good. It was actually Abraham. Now that's a little bit of a surprise because Abraham doesn't fit the usual profile of a prophet for most of us. He's known mostly just for believing of the promises that God spoke to him. That's kind of his claim to fame. But you think about those promises. God spoke to this man. God revealed things to him. And I want you to think, first of all, about what God revealed to him. It's interesting. God did not give to Abraham some book of secret knowledge, you know, some book of spells. And with this book of secret knowledge, he could unlock, you know, kind of the cosmic mysteries. Or with this book of spells, he could find a way to sort of tell fortunes. It was nothing like that. What God gave to Abraham, revealed to Abraham, was simply the future mighty works of God, just a few mighty works that were going to come in the future, by which God was going to restore his presence with his people in his place for his purposes. You know, that's my definition of the kingdom of God. It's God's presence with his people in his place for his purposes. That's basically what God promised to Abraham. God just showed him the future where there was going to be people and a place and God's presence and God's purposes being fulfilled. God was going to take what was Adam's curse and turn it into blessing for the family of Abraham and save the world through his seed. That was the, that was the revelation. It wasn't some weird, like, you know, secret book of whatever. And what's interesting is that Abraham's response to that word from the Lord he didn't say a lot. Abraham isn't running his mouth very much through his life, but he does pray a lot for his neighbors, including the city of Sodom. And he teaches his household the way of the Lord, and he lives in a way that introduces his neighbors to God, so that by the end of his life, even pagans are coming to him and saying, you know, the Lord is with you. So he's the first prophet. Interesting profile. Now, a bit further on in the story, we come to a very different character, and if you had to identify, Joan's already given it away, but if you had to identify the greatest prophet, I mean the towering prophetic figure against whose word 
all later words are judged. Like he's the gold standard. Everything else is judged against his prophetic word. Who would that be? I mean, that's obviously Moses. God himself described Moses as unique among the prophets. He said at one point in Numbers 11, or 12 rather, he said, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So Moses had, had a unique position. And if you think about what God is saying there, from the very first call of, Ab- of, of Moses to be a prophet, he is in God's fiery presence. See, when God shows up, he shows up as a consuming fire, and yet he doesn't destroy the bush in which he is, is inhabiting because his fire is from within himself. And he comes down in that fire, and he, you know, he, it becomes holy ground around that bush. And Moses is, is frightened, and he, he falls on his face, but he's not destroyed because God wants Moses to be near him. Well, later, of course, you know, some years later, God's going to bring a much, much bigger glory cloud of fire down on top of Mount Sinai, and Moses alone among all the Israelites is allowed to spend time there walking about somehow in that fiery, roaring presence of God's holiness. That's the kind of relationship this prophet has with God. And his word, the word that God gives Moses to proclaim as his prophet, we call it the Torah, the instruction. That word of Moses took the family of tribes from Abraham's seed, and it constituted those families, those tribes, into a nation, an organized kingdom of God on earth. Moses' word is going to take this kind of rabble of tribes and turn them into an organized kingdom, God's presence with these people in a particular place for his worldwide purposes. That was Moses, nothing like him. And yet it is so interesting in Moses' life that he saw himself not as the greatest of the prophets, but actually as just a forerunner of something even more, of even greater things. There's a very strange story that happens one day where God, Moses is getting a little worn down, as you can imagine, with all he has to do. And so God calls the 70 elders of Israel to the tabernacle where God's glory cloud is. And he takes some of the spirit that is on Moses, that allows him to be the prophet he is, and he takes some of that spirit and he puts it on these 70 elders to kind of spread the spirit. But there's these two guys, Eldad and Medad, who are not there for that ceremony. They're back in the camp, and all of a sudden, when God puts the spirit on these 70 elders, they start prophesying like Moses. But what's crazy is back in the camp, Eldad and Medad, who aren't even here, they start prophesying. Well, Joshua runs up to Moses and says, we got a problem. These dudes back in the camp, they're prophesying. We should shut them down. And Moses has a very interesting response. He says, what are you doing? These are his exact words. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And then in the very final series of sermons that Moses preached, we call it the book of Deuteronomy, he said something else about the future. He said to the Israelites, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses is this just magisterial prophet, and yet he is looking forward to an even greater prophet and a time when God might put his spirit upon all of his people, make them all prophets. Now, to just trace the rest of the story of the prophets very briefly, you'll notice that after Moses, prophets in the Old Testament, they come in waves at sort of significant points in the story. You've got the Samuel wave. Why? Because God is about to give a king, and kings really need to listen to God. 
or the nation goes to trash. And so Samuel is there in the days of kingmaking to make sure that the kings are faithful to Moses and, and the law of God. And then later you have another wave, the Elijah and Elisha wave. That's in the darkest hour of Israel's apostasy when King Ahab's trying to turn that nation back into like the pre-conquest Canaanites. He actually wants to be a Canaanite. It's just a wicked, dark, awful time. And God sends Elisha and Elijah, Elijah and then Elisha to speak his judgment on that sin, but also to work all of these life-giving wonders in the midst of that spiritually dead nation. But then we come to the last wave, the fourth wave, and we see something we have not seen since Moses. Because Samuel spoke, Elijah and Elisha spoke, but this fourth wave of prophets, they become writers. We haven't seen a writing prophet since Moses. Joel is one of these. And they write down, they inscribe something beyond the Torah, beyond what Moses wrote. They write something else as the focus for Israel's future. See, up till now, everything in Israel's story is focused around, are we faithful to the Torah, to the the law of Moses? But now the writing prophets begin to create another focus, something else for Israel to look at. They begin to introduce these visions of a new work of God in the future through the Messiah to come and through the spirit that God is going to put upon Messiah. And in this new Israel, as the writing prophets begin to write this vision, in this new Israel to come, what was largely confined to the prophets beforehand will now be poured out on all of God's people. And through their prophetic mission as a people, God is going to cause all nations of the earth to walk in his light. That's the story of the prophets. Now with that in view, let me turn secondly to the spirit of prophecy. So we've looked at the story of the prophets. Now I want to, with all that in view, look at the spirit of prophecy In light of that story, I want you to think for just a moment about one episode in the life of Jesus. One day, Jesus goes up on a mountain, and all of a sudden, God's glory shows up, kind of like it did on Sinai. And remember what happens to Jesus? He is, the word we use is he's transfigured. He begins to shine like the sun, and two dudes show up to talk to him. Who were they? Moses and Elijah. And what's happening is the Son of God is glorified on this mountain with Moses and Elijah standing there is God is showing his disciples, Jesus' disciples, that Jesus is that prophet who is greater than Moses. Because what they're talking about, Luke tells us in his gospel, is the new exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. He's going to be a greater Moses leading a greater exodus up on when he, when he comes to Jerusalem to give his life. And it, what's com- what, what God speaks out of that cloud that's covering the mountain, what does God say about, to the disciples about Jesus? What are his words? Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Exactly what Moses said about that greater prophet, you will listen to him. It actually echoes Moses' words. But Elijah's there too, because Jesus isn't just greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Elijah. Because Elijah walked through the land of Israel doing these life-giving miracles. He raised the dead. He turned like poisonous stew into healthy food. He, he, he fed people, just like Jesus. And What's interesting is Elijah, then when his work was finished, he ascended in a cloud of fiery glory on a chariot up into God's presence, and he did not see death. Well, Jesus, of course, is even greater than Elijah. His miracles will be even 
more magnificent than Elijah's because he's actually going to raise himself from the dead and save us from our sins in that way. God's Spirit is going to raise him from the dead, and then he will, of course, ascend in glory to the right hand of the Father. And, you know, this is all this imagery. Now, what's so very interesting about this scene is Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. If you know your Old Testament, both Moses and Elijah had a successor. This is crucially important. Who was Moses' successor? Who actually conquered the land? At the very end of Deuteronomy, God takes the spirit of Moses and he puts it on Joshua. And who is Elijah's successor? Well, of course, it's Elisha. And what is interesting is after the ascension of Elijah to heaven, Elisha receives a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And Elijah's prophetic mantle is left there, and Elisha picks that up. He now has double Elijah's spirit, and he has the prophetic mantle of Elisha. Both of these great prophets had successors. So here's my question to you guys. Who's the successor to Jesus after his ascension? Because that's what we just read. This fiery glory, this fire of God that was there in the burning bush, it was there on Mount Sinai, it was there in that fiery chariot that took Elijah back to heaven, it it settled upon the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus met with Moses and Elijah. That fire comes from heaven like a mighty rushing wind and it begins to seat itself, not upon Sinai, not in some physical chariot, but seats itself upon the saints, seats itself upon the church the body of Christ. And what happens when the spirit and the fire of God fall upon this new school of prophets? What what starts coming out of them, beloved? What did we just read? The word of God starts pouring out of them like because they're prophets. They've just been anointed. Craig Keener describes this very well. He says the backdrop in the succession narrative of Elijah and Elisha indicates that for Luke, Jesus is passing his mission to the church. Jesus on Pentecost gave his prophetic mission to the church, to the body of Christ. My friend Alistair Roberts writes this in a wonderful booklet he's written about so much of this. He says, in a, so you think about Jesus, and we tend to think a lot about Jesus as we should, but he says, in adopting a very narrow focus on the identity and personal ministry of Jesus, we can fail to appreciate the degree to which Luke's treatment of the early church is driven by more than a mere biographical or historical interest. For Luke, the church plays a key role in the drama of God's salvation, both as the place where that salvation is realized and, listen, and as the agency through whom salvation is borne witness to and spread. See, Jesus himself said this, didn't he? He said before he ascended to the Father, he said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. The prophetic mission, beloved, is what the Holy Spirit is for. Now, what did these newly mantled prophets in this Pentecost story, what did these newly mantled prophets start speaking? What is the content of their message? It's the mighty works of God. Do you see that? In verse 11, all these people in town that day in Jerusalem are, you know, from all over the world are like, what's going on here? Because we're all hearing in our own language the mighty works of God, especially the mightiest work of God, which is raising Jesus from the dead. And Peter, later in the sermon, I didn't read it, but later in the sermon, that's what he starts preaching about is God has done many mighty works, but the biggest work of all is he's raised Jesus from the dead. Now, this is important. 
Because, see, I grew up in the charismatic movement, as you know, and there was an idea about prophecy in that form of Christianity. And I think there was some confusion because you'll notice these people, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they start prophesying, these people are not fortune tellers. They're not fortune tellers. You, you didn't go to these people and find out who you should marry and whether you should change jobs and, you know, what it would take to earn some more money and how's the stock market going to do and, you know, will I be healthy? And it, was, it weren't fortune tellers. That was not what was going on through the Spirit. Now, it's true. Early on, as Jesus is taking care of his ch- baby church by the Holy Spirit, it is true there were some specialized prophets in those days. I call them specialized prophets. They were all prophets. But there were some specialized prophets, and God enabled these special prophets to predict some events that the church needed to prepare for. For example, there was this this dude named Agabus, and one day he prophesied there was going to be a famine because God wanted his people to have some time to get ready and prepare some food. And then that same prophet, Agabus, prophesied that Paul was going to be arrested when he went back to Jerusalem for the last time, and so Paul could kind of get himself ready for that. So that that kind of thing did go on. But it wasn't fortune-telling. The focus of the ministry of these prophets as the Spirit is moving in them is they begin to speak the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus has now established. And and, and related to that news about the fact that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord, they would also give instructions about how to live under Jesus' lordship and, and, and encouragements Paul describes prophetic ministry in 1 Corinthians 14 this way. He says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. It was a way of ministering by the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus has done. This is who he is. This is who we are. This is what our life is going to be like under him. And God is with us, and he's made promises, and they would speak forth this stuff. Now, I want you to think how essential... Those spirit-inspired words. I mean, it would have been like this. We'd all be gathered, and all of a sudden, you know, Sal would stand up and start speaking forth who Jesus is and what he's done and how we should then live in light of that. Think about how essential those spirit-inspired words were in those early decades of the church. Because most of these people in these little gatherings of Christians, if they were literate, I mean, assuming they could read, they probably had not a single parchment of Jewish scripture except what was in their heads. They didn't have Jewish Bibles, most of them. Those might have been in the synagogues. They didn't like carry those around. The, the four gospels hadn't been written. Paul's letters hadn't been written. Maybe none of the letters had been written in those early days of the church. They didn't have apostolic writings, although fragments, I'm sure, began circulating quite early. Many of them were not formally educated. Try being, you know, a fisherman in those days, with no Jewish Bible, no Christian Bible, no nothing, all you and you are called to explain to Jews, and God help you, pagans even, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means to live for him. They needed the Spirit to speak through them for their encouragement, instruction, consolation, building up. It was a very long time before the Holy Spirit's work could shift from inspired words like that in worship services to instead taking this, a spirit-inspired and fully inscribed word of God and begin the work of illuminating that instead, where you don't need Ben Miller to stand up here and have like an ecstatic experience of the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit helps us to understand what the Spirit has inspired. It was a long time before that could be the way the Spirit worked. So that's the spirit of prophecy. And that brings us to now. 
And I want to round out today's message by just speaking to you now for a moment or two about having spoken about the story of the prophets, the spirit of prophecy, lastly, the school of prophethood. I want us to begin to think together about the universal prophethood of all believers and think about what it means to be in the school of prophethood. I want to just offer a few seed thoughts for this local school of prophets, which we are. A few things quickly. Number one, prophethood is an honor. It is an honor. Do you realize what God has given you, beloved? From the humanly least of us to the humanly greatest of us, God has taken all of you into his counsels. God has not only made you his children, and Jesus calls you his friends, God has made you ambassadors of his kingdom, and he has actually, if I can put it this way, he has made you advisors who sit in his council. As surely as seraphim and cherubim in heaven sit, and they are in, on God's council, you as his people sit as his counselors. He expects you to call upon him to do things and to cry out to him to move in certain ways, to speak to him and say, Father, move and do this. Father, you have spoken, so bring it to pass. You, it's, it's as if you are an advisor of God himself. And he has opened his plans to you. Now, I mean, I can't, he hasn't told us what tomorrow is going to bring or even, you know, 500 years from now or 5,000 years from now in a lot of detail, but he has opened his plans to you. You, I mean, these little ones who know their catechism in a certain sense know something about the future of the world that nobody else knows who has not taken up God's revelation. God has opened his plans to you of what he's going to do through Christ. The full revelation of God now is available to all of God's people. I don't know why we don't spend more time with it. God has spoken. Yawn. Back to Netflix. God has given you, all of you, his full revelation. And that revelation has conferred upon you authority. And I wonder if we know that we have this authority. Jesus said, when you speak forth the word of God, you can bind things and loose things in heaven. You can minister life and you can minister death. When I proclaim and you proclaim the good news that Jesus is Savior and Lord and if you look to him, you will live and if you, if you go to war with him, you will die. You are spiritually binding and loosing. You are proclaiming this is the door into the kingdom of God and this, there's no other way in. That is a kind of opening and shutting of the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel. The Bible tells us that we can tear down spiritual strongholds and raise up spiritual foundations through the word of God. And every one of you, not just a pastor, not just elders, every one of you from the least to the greatest has that authority. It's Christ's authority. It's not your authority or my authority, but when you are speaking, beloved, according to the word of God, you are speaking with the authority of Jesus himself. This is what the Lord has said. And there is something about that that is so refreshing, that kind of authority that comes when you're speaking what God has said. You know, it, it's, it's a wonderful reminder in our relativistic age that not everything is, well, it's just your opinion, man. Now, there are things that God has said are true and God has said are false, and it is refreshing to hear someone just speak that out unironically. You know, say, you will about, say what you will about Kanye West. You know why I love listening to his albums? Because it's just refreshing to hear someone who has that much influence unironically saying, Jesus is Lord. That's truth. And there's a sense in which he is binding and loosing by proclaiming that word, because that God said that. That isn't Kanye's idea. Prophethood is an honor. 
Second thing, prophethood is mobilized. To be a prophet is to be sent. It is to be here and now for God because God has sent us. I want to say something that's just a little bit intense to take in. Prophethood is mobilized. We, the church, are the vehicle now of Christ's prophetic mission on earth. Do you ever think about that? Now, we don't supply the content. That's the word. We don't supply the power. That's the spirit. But, dear saints, we're the vehicle of that prophetic mission now in the world. It's the church. I mean, it's God's design that his gospel is going to advance and fill the world, not by the word alone, not even by the word and spirit alone, but by the word and the spirit and the church, which means that this prophethood is not a luxury. It's not like, oh, you know, Ben Miller decided to go to seminary and be a prophet. You know, some people decide to be elders. Some people decide to be like witnessing Christians. Actually, it's not just a luxury that some Christians enter into. It is a commission to all of us that together we are part of a discipled movement. We together are living this kingdom life. We are speaking kingdom truth, and we are inviting other people to be baptized and taught all things that Jesus has commanded. It's a mobilized movement. Dallas Willard calls it the great omission. It's supposed to be the great commission. It's often the great omission. That's a failure of prophethood. Prophethood is an honor. It's mobilized. Now, that said, thirdly, prophethood is learned. It's learned. It's an honor. It's mobilized, but it is learned. Because it must also be said that equality of prophetic office is not the same thing as equality of prophetic skill. You, you with me? You with me? Just because we all have the office of prophet, and we do, doesn't necessarily mean we're all skilled at the same level. And that's okay. You know, knowing the word, speaking the word, living the word, it takes practice, doesn't it? Now, we're all called to be studious. We should care about the word. We should seek wisdom. We should ask for wisdom. We should be meditating on the word day and night. But prophethood is also not populist. There's this kind of, populism is a big thing now. We have this idea that everyone's an expert. And really kind of everyone's a king. Well, everyone is certainly not an expert. Certainly not everyone is a king. And it's no different in prophethood. It is all of us are called to be studious in the word, but it's not a populist movement because just like we're all children of God, but we're not all equally like our father, we're all prophets, but not all prophets are alike. And that's actually okay. God has given all of us the authority and the calling to proclaim his word, but it's just reality that not all of us are ready yet to explain the depths of the word or to apply the word really, really wisely, I think it's safe to say that even our tiniest children can lisp the simple core of the truth of the gospel, which is that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And they can speak that with the authority of God. But as you swim out from that core deeper into the word, and actually get beyond the word into applying the word now out there where there are just some wisdom issues, you realize we need each other. The universal prophethood of believers doesn't take away the fact there's still a teaching ministry and we learn from each other. Prophethood is learned. But speaking of those relationships, fourthly, prophethood is not just an honor, mobilized, learned. Prophethood, fourthly, speaks through unity in the body of Christ. Because as we're relating to each other, it's interesting, that relating is actually part of the witness. Paul says something in Ephesians 3 that is so striking. He says, God has a plan to witness his manifold wisdom to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. 
God has taken Jews and Gentiles and put them together now, and that's part of how God witnesses his, what he is doing in Christ. Unity, our unity in the church, is part of how God proclaims to the world what he's doing through Jesus. In other words, you and I could go out there and preach God's putting all things back together through Jesus, but it's the way we behave together in community that is perhaps preaching that the loudest. Prophethood speaks through unity. And it's interesting, you know, you, I'm sure some of you picked up the, the Tower of Babel sort of inversion here in this text. Because at Babel, as human beings are trying to build a tower to heaven, God comes down and he says, fine, you're going to have like thousands of different languages. I'm just going to scatter you by, by dividing your languages. And humanity was fragmented with nothing to unify it now because they couldn't even speak the same word. What Pentecost, God doesn't exactly reverse that because he doesn't change all the languages back into one language. There's still all this diversity, but they're all speaking the same mighty works of God now. So it isn't just what they are saying, the mighty works of God. It is that they are all saying it in all these different languages and tongues. All these peoples and all their different cultures, they're all saying the same thing. That that is happening is itself God-bearing witness. So it's an honor, it's mobilized, it's learned, it speaks through unity, and finally, just to be ready, prophethood also disrupts. If the status quo is a wheel, the word of the Lord comes from beyond the rim. And prophets breathe that rarefied air, and they are unsettled by that air of the word of the Lord, and they start speaking unsettling things to the status quo. We're going to have a lot more to say about, in this, about that in this series, but for now, I just want to encourage you guys to be ready. This honor that God has given to you, it really does require humble, spirit-given courage. Courage to know that you're going to unsettle things and people are not going to like it. But there's a confidence that comes in knowing that our weaponry is the word. The word of God is all he's given you. You know what a prophet has? Does a prophet have a sword? Does a prophet have weapons of mass destruction? Does a prophet have political clout? A prophet has the word. The word is all God has given you. That is your only weapon as a prophet. That's God's way of unsettling the world through the witness of his church. It looks weak until you remember it's the word. (laughs) It's the word that made the heavens and the earth and raised Jesus from the dead. So what I want to do with those points, just sort of seeding for the future, I want to, the next six sermons, here's what I want to do through the Advent season. I'm going to give you six profiles. We're going to talk about Abraham the intercessor, Moses the builder, Samuel the kingmaker, Elijah and Elisha the resistance, Jeremiah the visionary, and Jonah the reactionary. And I want to walk through these six prophetic profiles, and I want to show you how they are forerunners of Christ and how they are models for the church. My hope in this series is that we will have a better grasp of how the prophets prepared the way for Jesus, but also explore ways we might take them as models for our contemporary witness in a very, very needy moment when we need prophets and we need the prophets to know they're prophets. Amen? So guide us through this, we pray, Lord God, for your glory. In Jesus' good name, amen.